All right, have a seat. If you have a Bible, get it out. Open up the book of 1 John. We'll be in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. If you do not have a Bible, lift up your hand and we will bring you one. Jesse is in the back, recently recovered from a knee surgery. So part of his rehabilitation is to pass out Bibles on Sunday morning. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, we'll get you one. I'll even tell you what page it's on. We're going to be on page uh, 1,023 this morning. Everybody doing all right this morning? All right, look to your neighbor because most of them were not here when we did the greeting at the beginning and just say, hey, I'm glad you're here. Look to your neighbor, say, I'm glad we're here. Man, it is fun to be together. This is an exciting time of the year. I love this time of the year. We've got a couple of things coming up. I want to make sure you're thinking about and I want to affirm the men Uh, Last week, I mentioned to you, we have a men's retreat coming up the second weekend in September. We have a women's retreat coming up the fourth weekend in September. And last Sunday, I said, men, I'm going to send out an email. And if you don't start signing up, then I'm going to punch you in the face. And there will be about 15 people that I don't have to punch in the face. So that's pretty awesome. And um, (laughs) um, Actually, I won't do it. We have a team that does that kind of stuff. So um, anyway, so, so sign up. It's, it, it, we, we want you to sign up. You can sign up online. Go to neartownchurch.org, events, sign up right there. We will actually have a booth in the back for those of you that can't navigate that World Wide Web next Sunday, and we'll let you sign up there. Uh, and then the women's retreat sign up will begin this week also. So it's going to be a good time. We're looking forward to it. I've had a lot of guys say to me, hey, I'm looking forward to the men's retreat. I hear we're shooting guns. And uh, we are. We're going to shoot guns. And it's going to be awesome. I love it because every year about half the guys that go have never shot a gun before. And so I see boys become men right in front of me. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty awesome. So, uh, and there's some uh, the scuttlebutt regarding the women's retreat is that the women are going to want to shoot guns also which I will not have any part of that. Okay, here we go. So uh, this is an exciting time of the year, man. We, we are working through 1 John, and we've been in this book of the Bible all summer. So many of you or some of you are new here for the very first time. You're like, what kind of church is this? This is the kind of church we have a vision to plant churches in neighborhoods all over the world, but really focusing a lot in Houston, specifically the inner loop of Houston. We care deeply about that. So we have our Leadership is involved in church planting in some way in a lot of different places in Interloop Houston. We also care about being simple. I mean, like we are a very simple church. We don't have a bazillion programs. But one of the things we do when we gather on Sunday morning is we, we sing songs that are Christ-centered to God. We, we, we try to be authentic. People can dress up to come to a Sunday morning or they don't have to dress up to come to a Sunday morning. It doesn't really matter to us. Um, We're just glad you're here. And then we teach through books of the Bible for the most part. Occasionally I'll do a series in the Bible, topical series, like for instance, in, uh, after this series is over, next Sunday is the last one. After that, I'm going to do a series that really focuses on like family, like your immediate family, your extended family, church family, neighborhood is family, that kind of a thing. And so it's going to be really awesome. But for the, what we want you to understand is that we believe that the written word, the Bible, reveals the living word, Jesus. And so that's why we want to get into it. We want to dive in it and wallow around in it. My responsibility in this time is to help you understand the scriptures, to explain to you the Bible, hopefully in a way that uh, keeps you engaged and interested and all that, okay? Here's the main idea for this morning as we are going to be reading in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Whoever has the Son has life. 
Whoever does not have the son does not have life. That's actually directly from verse 12. Whoever has the son, Jesus Christ has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. It's interesting to consider for a moment, let's get reflective, this idea of life and the brevity of life. I'm actually right after I get done preaching, I'm getting in my truck, I'm driving uh, to... Uh, near Tulsa to attend the funeral of a man that has attended our church while he was receiving cancer treatment. He's also the father of one of my closest friends. And what I will consider as I'm at this funeral in this hour, listening to all these people talk about what an incredible life this guy has lived, something will go through my mind and I know it because it goes through my mind every time I preach a funeral, every time I attend a funeral. And that is this, life is short. Every time. Because life is short. And so I feel in this moment an urgency. So there's an urgency in this hour. And the urgency in this hour is to say to you in a way that you will believe that whoever has the Son, Jesus Christ, has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life, does not have the the complete Uh, peace and life that God has created you to experience. So, so much in John's letter to this fledgling church hinges on the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Last week, just briefly reviewing, we looked at the first five verses of chapter five, and what we discovered is that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you're born again. There's a new life, new creation. If you're born again, then you'll love God by obeying his commandments. What was the greatest commandment, or second greatest commandment, second to loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind? What's the second greatest commandment? Loving others, yeah. And I know God's using that word to stir in this community of faith a great affection for one another. So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you're born again, if you're born again, then you will love God. And the way that we know that we love God is if we're obeying the commands of God. First and foremost, the command to love one another. So here's the obvious question. And it was clearly an issue for those that John first wrote to. And it's an issue for us today. How do we know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Maybe you're here and you have an appreciation for what we're doing here, an appreciation for your friend's faith in Christ, an appreciation for religions of all kinds, but what you really want to ask that maybe you've never been given permission to ask and you are given permission in this place, and I'm going to try to answer today, how do we know that Jesus is the God-man? How do we know that he's the Christ, the Son of God? And it's the answer to this question that separates us from every other worldview, from atheists, those that claim that there is no God, from agnostics, those that claim that there is no way to know or have knowledge of God, from the Muslims, from the Dallas Cowboy fans. This answer separates us from all of them. Are there any Cowboys fans in here? Just, just praying, just praying, just praying what I'm doing right now. So the answer to this question separates us, but it also sends us. 
don't know about you, but I've had some church experiences like, man, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, so we're just going to like hide from everybody that doesn't believe that. No, 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 no. We don't see that. I mean, Jesus came into the world and said, go into the world with this message that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, and through Christ, we can have salvation, forgiveness of sin. So the answer to the question, how do we know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, separates us? There's an exclusivity to the kind of salvation that Christ offers. This truth is central to Christianity, but it also sends us. And my aim today is that if you do not have faith, I hope that you will believe based on the answer to the question. Most of you do have faith in Christ. My hope and aim for you is that it will strengthen your faith. It will strengthen your faith. So John writes in his letter to a group of people who clearly had the question, how do we know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And he actually says in verses 6 through 12, there are three ways that you can know, three evidences of it. Now, I do not prescribe to the idea that by defending the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that that will, in fact, cause you to believe. I understand the Bible teaching that it's through the power and work of the Holy Spirit working in your heart that draws you into faith in Christ. But I will and do see in the Bible that there's evidence that we ought to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if you're here and you have not yet believed, that at the very least, it will get you to think. What we're going to do is talk about these three things that John writes to those first listeners. They're very relevant to us as to reasons that we could and should believe that Jesus is the Christ. Because if he is the Christ, then we ought to believe in him. And if we believe in him, we're born again. Now, let's just for a moment think about this idea of believing something is true because there are reliable testimonies about it. So something... Beautiful happened last night. Houston Texans played. Raise your hand if you watched the Houston Texans play last night. Were any of you there at the game? Thanks for the invite. Um, So the Houston Texans played last night. You may not have seen the game. Maybe you didn't even know the game existed. But I'm telling you right now that it was a preseason game where the Houston Texans won 23 to 10. I'm glad they did or I would not even be talking about it this morning. They beat the 49ers. So you may not have seen the game, watched the news, or even known that they were playing, but I'm telling you that I was a witness to somebody else who saw the events of the game. I was not at the game. I didn't actually watch the game. I read about it in the news. But you say, well, I don't know if I really believe that. Well, I can tell you facts about the win. Maybe that will help you believe. They played three quarterbacks. Brian Hoyer started as the quarterback. It was two of four, 67 yards and one touchdown with a 135.4 passer rating. Here's some more facts that are true, verifiable. Ryan Mallett finished the rest of the first half completing 10 of 11 passes for 90 yards and four drives. Was it impressive? John, I saw your hand raised. Was it a good game? So, so you may not have seen the game. You may not have seen firsthand that the Texans won, but I'm telling you that they won. There's some evidence that they won because there were reporters that wrote stories about it. That's why I'm telling you, because they saw firsthand. And if there was only one reporter that said anything about the victory, I might be skeptical. But no, I read multiple reports, and we have some people in here that were eyewitnesses, right? Raise your hand if you were at the game and you saw that they won 23 to 10. 
So there are multiple people who can verify. Do we believe it's true that the Houston Texans won last night? Come on, people. Do you believe it's true? Yes, of course you do. Why? Because there are trustworthy witnesses to the event. There were multiple people who saw it. So this is kind of what John is doing here. Three things that happened that are verifiable by the fact that they were seen by John. Remember in his first chapter, he said, I've seen these things happen. They've also been talked about. They've been written about. The Bible has more reliable sources and copies than any other book in history. The reason that people deny the truth of the Bible isn't as much because it's illogical to believe it's true. It's because it is hard to receive the truth of the Bible because it causes us to change the way we live, right? So three things that John says are in evidence that Jesus is the Christ. Because if he is and we believe, then we're born again. Verse 6, he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Two of the three are right here, the water and the blood. The water is a reference to baptism. So if you have your Bible, open it up to John's gospel, John chapter one. This message may be for those of you that have had your caffeine this morning in some form, because we're going to do a little thinking this morning. John chapter one, John chapter one, same guy who wrote the first, second, and third letter of John, writes a gospel, which is an account of the life of Jesus. All over the account, it's screaming in testimony to Jesus as the Christ. And it wasn't just that he was baptized because Jesus wasn't the only person during this period baptized. It was that what happened at his baptism testifies to the truth that Jesus is the Savior. At his baptism, Jesus is revealed as the Son of God. There's evidence that makes it verifiable and believable and true. Verse 29 of John chapter 1, John the Baptist bears witness that Jesus is, quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And remember, what do lambs do? They die. They take away sin by dying according to the Old Testament law. But Jesus is the final lamb after Jesus and his death. There needs to be. There no longer needs to be a sacrifice for sin because he is the lamb. The next day, going on in verse 29, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and he says, behold, the lamb of God. So John the Baptist is a witness. He takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 31, John the Baptist says, the purpose for which God sent him was that Christ be revealed. In verse 32 and 33, God tells John the Baptist the manner of this revelation would be that the Holy Spirit, here's what happened, would visibly land on Jesus and remain on him like a dove. And it says, I quote, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So God wants to reveal Jesus as the Christ. And John bore witness, verse 32. Here is the evidence. At his baptism, something unique happened. It gives evidence to the fact that he is the Christ. Verse 32, and John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And then in verse 34, the apostle John bears witness. I have seen and bore witness that this is the son of God. So John is saying, I'm a witness. 
The other gospels give an account similar, but they include a part where there's a voice from heaven that speaks at Jesus' baptism and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the first evidence that we read about in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, is the baptism. The events surrounding the baptism of Jesus are an evidence that Jesus is the Christ. A second evidence is the cross or blood. If you're in John's gospel, flip all the way almost to the end to John chapter 19. You know the story of Jesus' life. He was born into a family that did not have much of a reputation in a city that was not known to produce really great leaders. He began to speak with such authority that he was recognized in the synagogues as being one who spoke a, the Old Testament scriptures in a way that came with power. He grew up, he became a rabbi. People recognized him as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a leader. He did things that declared an authority in the natural realm that could have only happened if he had access to the supernatural realm. The waters are stormy. He calms the sea. There are a lot of people and a limited amount of food. He multiplies the food so that everybody can eat. There's a sick person. He heals them. A blind person, he heals them. There's a demoniac. There's somebody with demons in them out of control so much that they're chained. Jesus heals them. So Jesus does these kinds of things in his life. He also extends the reach of God's love to the marginalized, to people that are poor, to people that are uh, children, uh, women who in this day were marginalized very much so, especially among Jewish people. He did these things. Eventually, he was crucified as a criminal. His blood was shed. Three days later, we believe that the scriptures say that he was raised from the dead by the power of God. But the blood of Christ, his shed blood, is an evidence that he is the Christ. John chapter 19, verses 33, say this, 33 and following. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced, and this is after he was actually crucified on the cross. One of the the soldiers pierced his side with his spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it. Born witness, the testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. So there's the water, the baptism that provides evidence. There's the events of his death, the crucifixion that provide evidence that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I want to pause here because you may be thinking to yourself, uh, this is great. This all comes from the Bible. You may actually believe that nowhere else outside the Bible does anybody talk about Jesus. That is not true, and I want to tell you a couple of places. These are extra biblical evidences about who Jesus is. Now, don't get bored here. I hope you're interested. If you do get bored, I apologize. All right, here we go. There's a historian called Edwin Yamuchi. He calls what I'm about to read probably the most important reference to Jesus outside of the New Testament. Um, There's a historian called Tacitus. He's reporting on Emperor Nero's decision to blame the Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome in A.D. 64. And here's what he says. Nero fastened the guilt. So this is talking about a time where Christians 
were being blamed for a fire. Does everybody get that? This is the beginning of really 30 years or so after Jesus was crucified, raised from dead, ascended into heaven. So the Christian church is really small. There's every reason in the world it should have been snuffed out. But it's beginning to grow and become bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Because as we'll see later, the Spirit of God is in it. So Thesitus is a historian. He's writing about the events, what's happening. There's a fire. Nero, here's what he says. Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, a reference to Jesus, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, which is a possible reference to the resurrection, broke out in Judea, the first source, but even in Rome. So we have here a historian named Tacitus who is writing about Nero blaming the Christians for a fire, which is true, recorded in history. A fire broke out in Rome. There's all kinds of speculation as to who did it, but Nero wanted to blame the Christians. He wanted everybody mad at him. Well, in this account, what is acknowledged by the historian is that there is a man by the name of Jesus who was crucified, who had followers, and that movement was spreading rapidly. And there was a part of that movement that involved a superstition that its leader, Jesus, who was crucified, was raised from the dead. This is not in the Bible. It's outside of the Bible. One more. Perhaps the most remarkable reference to Jesus outside the Bible can be found in the writings of Josephus. He's a first century historian. And on two occasions in his what's called Jewish Antiquities, which is like a historical uh, narrative, he mentions Jesus. There is a portion that's relevant for what we're doing here. And here's what Josephus says about this man named Jesus. This is for you that are here and that will listen on the podcast who are skeptical as to whether or not Jesus even existed at all. Is the Bible the only place that talks about him? Well, no, there are other places in history. Here's what Josephus says. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him merely a man. For he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him, did not give up their affection for him. And on the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. So we see evidence here that, and as you would imagine, there are certainly those that are skeptical regarding these historical accounts. But what I want, for the most part, scholars believe that this is what these, these historians wrote. What I want you to see is that there's evidence that Jesus is, existed, that he was more than a mere man outside of even the Bible. And we can, in fact, believe that the events of the baptism of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus are enough for us to confess Jesus is God. I want to give my life to him. I want to receive him and begin the rest of my days honoring God and looking to Jesus for how I ought to live. But there's a third way, according to 1 John chapter 6. 1 John chapter 6 says, there's one more way, and the Spirit is the one who testifies. 
Because the Spirit is the truth. So there's the baptism, there's the blood, and then there's the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit and that whole conversation is interesting. It's kind of mysterious, maybe a little strange to you. But here is really quickly a theology on the Holy Spirit. God is one being in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are one being, one person. So God's Spirit, God's Son, and God the Father have always existed. When Jesus walked on the earth after he ascended at an event called Pentecost, God sent his spirit into the lives of all those that would believe. The spirit has worked forever, but prior to Jesus and prior to the Pentecost, the spirit would come on people for a certain period of time for certain reasons. But since Pentecost, all those that confess Christ have the spirit of God in them. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 says that it's a seal of your inheritance. You, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, have the Spirit of God in you. For some of you, that's what was required for you to get out of bed and come to church this morning, (laughs) you know? So John, in his letter, 1 John, in chapter 5, verse 6, he's saying that the Spirit testifies. There's something mysterious that moves within us that tells us that God has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus. And if we follow Christ, there's life. If we don't follow Christ, there's not life. The role of the Spirit, according to John chapter 14, verse 26, is is also as a helper. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus as the Christ. So if you're here and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit is what moves us, stirs us. It doesn't just happen once, like the baptism of Jesus or the crucifixion of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is what moves every single day to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in your life and in the lives of those around you and in this city. This is mysterious, but so powerful. Think about it. How could the message of Jesus, a man from a poor family who died as a criminal, be spread so rapidly that it literally turned the Roman world upside down? It was such a threat to Nero that he blamed the Christians for a fire that began for some other reason. It's because the Spirit of God bears witness in the hearts of people. How could the Bible, which is a book that sold more copies than any other book in history, with more reliable sources to verify its authenticity, be preserved for 2,000 and plus years? How could it? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit bears witness in the hearts of people. How could this church be birthed in the center of this fast-paced, increasingly secular city, with no money, very few people, and a message that preaches the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. How is this possible? When I set out with a group of people to start this church, I had multiple people share stories with me about how planting a church in this neighborhood was impossible. Guys burn out, they die, because it's hard. I mean, too difficult. There's too much opposition and resistance, especially if you're gonna come with a message that says, What Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. How could that be? The Spirit bears witness in the hearts of people. How is it that you, who were once dead spiritually, 
separated from God because of your sin, chasing after your own definition of what it means to live a life. Be here, caring about the things of God. Why do you care? The Spirit bears witness in the hearts of people. If you can look back over the course of your life, you might be able to think of times where the Spirit guided you or protected you or convicted you, comforted you. How is that possible? Because the Spirit bears witness in the hearts of people that giving our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ is completely worth it. In fact, your story, the story of how the Spirit is guiding you and leading you is a hard story to argue with. I know that the Spirit of God is working in your lives. For some of you, He's working in your life because you walked into this room very skeptical that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe you've had a respect for your family members or friends who follow the way of Christ, but for you, you see it as maybe a a movement for non-thinking people or ignorant people, people that haven't quite arrived yet intellectually. But maybe, just maybe, in this moment, what you feel in your heart is this. It could be true. Why is that? Because the Spirit bears witness in your heart that Jesus is God. And what we confess is that whoever has Jesus has life. Whoever does not have Jesus does not have life. Still others of you are in here, and you need God to work in your life, and you're wondering, what do I do? Where do I go? Whoever has Jesus has life which includes answers and direction and peace, purpose. Whoever does not have Jesus does not have life. It's your choice. You can continue flailing around in this life, trying to fill that God-sized hole in your heart with being fit enough, rich enough, popular enough, all of these things. And there's nothing wrong with being good-looking, It's a good thing for you. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with having resources to live with. Nothing, those are not the enemy. But if you are making those things the object of your affection so that you can experience life that you want to experience, you're dead. You can, in fact, reject all of this. John says... You reject it, you reject the testimony of the water and the blood and testimony of the Spirit. What you're ultimately doing is calling God a liar. You can do it. You don't have to believe. But if you do believe, I want you to know you will have life. No matter what storm comes, what difficulty comes your way, God will by the power of the Spirit that dwells within you, keep you living. In the sense that the passage says in verse 12, those that have the Son have life, those that do not have the Son do not have life. Do you have life this morning? This is my question for you.